Hi, and welcome to The Caption Life, a show for the most casual and dedicated fans of comics and a member of the Comic Watch family. I am your host, Sean. Join me and discover what the world of comics and graphic novels has to offer. From one-on-one interviews with industry professionals to roundtable discussions with passionate fans and reviews on the latest comics, TV shows, and movies. You can find me on social media under the username at Caption Life. You can also find more episodes and information at thecaptionlife.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. In today's episode, we are discussing the 31st movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Now, this is the third Ant-Man film and the first film kicking off Phase 5. And I do have a special guest joining me today to help review the movie. So please welcome Ashley Saunders. Ashley is a writer, movie critic, and podcaster, and geek. She writes about films, TV shows, and travel. She is a contributor at CBR and a proud member of both the Online Association of Female Film Critics and the International Film Society Critics. Ashley is all about Marvel, Ahsoka, and goes to Disney as much as possible. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I, I absolutely love how you said you're a fan of Ahsoka and that you go to Disney as much as possible. I'm assuming that's Disney World. Uh, yeah, because I'm an East Coaster, but I do make it out to the West Coast occasionally. I was about and to say, I, yeah, because I'm, I'm a Midwestern as well. Right here. So. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I definitely want to go visit Avengers Campus at some point, but oh, I've only been to it's so Disney cool. World. Like, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I could have just spent all day just like sitting at Penn yeah. Kitchen and just watching and experiencing. It was so great. I, I've heard nothing but great things about it and all the videos on TikTok and YouTube makes me jealous. I have not been yet. So I think we're going to plan on going there in the next couple of years. But I, I, I have to say that I'm also a huge Disney World fan. We used to be annual pass members before the pandemic. And then we're kind of sad and regretting that we didn't renew our annual passes. And we're hoping to bring it back at some point. But I always love meeting other Disney World fans. So this is oh, a, yeah. this is a I, was, yeah. I was raised on Disney World. So I yeah. went backwards <laughs> and forwards. I was just there. So, yeah. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> and I'm going back in April. So I'll be there soon. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Well, I wanted to start off with um, doing something a little bit different. So usually with all of our guests on our show, we talk about their origin story. And because this is a comic book uh, podcast, we usually talk about comics origin story. But since we're going to be reviewing Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, I thought it'd be fun to talk about um, your MCU origin story. So I wanted to throw that question out there and ask you, um, what was it that got you into the Marvel Cinematic Universe that made you a diehard fan, as you describe yourself? So I was a comic book reader and Mm -hmm. so I guess that's probably where it came from, you know, just reading the (laughs) comics. And then as a kid, you know, I'm a millennial. So I grew up with the OG X-Men animated show and it was one of my favorite shows, like hands (laughs) down. Like I'm so excited for X-Men 97. I know that's not what we're talking about, but I'm excited. I am too. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) That I think that's probably what it was. And then, you know, the movie started to come out and, the X-Men films were there. They're, they were okay. They weren't what I wanted. I wanted this <laughs> cartoon, but like live action. So it was, it was a little mess right. for me. And then I'm not a huge Iron Man fan. He's not my favorite. So I mm-hmm. probably like dove hardcore into the MCU when Cap, the first Avenger came out. But honestly, it's just, I've been a fangirl and we're living in a great age for fan girls and boys and fandoms mm-hmm. because we have so much content coming out. It's great. 
Right. Yeah, I agree. Well, and 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 we have similar backgrounds that, that as well too. I, I'm a I was a comic book reader growing up, and then I got away from it from high school. X Men animated series. I, I think that's like the number one thing that people have said when they come on the show that got them into comics was that show is either somebody introduced it to them or the show is what got them into comics basically um but what's funny is i've been a fan of the mcu ever since the first movie came out and that's partly because you know when iron man came out that was the year that my wife and i got married and she absolutely loved iron man and she got into it so it's nice to for both of us to kind of have like a nice little fandom that we can both enjoy as well too so that was part of my MCU origin story. So yeah, I mean, if you grew up, you know, reading the comic books and the, the animated shows and stuff like that, the MCU is just kind of that natural progression of, I want to have more of that. And so that makes a lot of sense. So, well, thank you very much. So um, let's get into the review. Just like all of our other review episodes, we are going to be talking about what happens in the movie. So there will be spoilers. So if you haven't watched the movie yet, just know that there will be spoilers. So you've been warned. And as with every episode, we will discuss some of the key moments, themes and elements of Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. So for this episode, we'll be discussing our overall thoughts about the film, the best and worst moments of the film for us, uh, the Ant family, MODOK. Kang, and then the ending post credit scene in the future of the MCU. Now, before we start into that and talk about overall thoughts, I did want to share what some of the listeners of the show have thought about the movie. And so I'm going to go ahead and read some of those out loud right now um, on this episode. And so first of all, we're going to share some of the comments I got from our Discord channel, which again, if you are interested, we do have a Discord server that we run called the Illuminacasters. I run it with uh, JT from Beyond the Fandom podcast. Ellie from the All Day Show, and then our good friend Steven, who is a digital artist. Um, so if you're interested in joining that, I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, but from the Discord channel, uh, channel we have Joe Loves Comics said, I've really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. It was definitely something that could have been better in places, but for what it was, I had a great time. And then Derek from Paperweight Entertainment said, better than the critic score, what have you believe. A sloppy script wasn't enough to deter me from marveling at the impressive visuals. An incredible performance by Jonathan Majors, nor could have wiped the ridiculous grin off my face every time Modoc was on screen. I know Derek, and he probably did have a dumb grin on his face when he was watching it. So, um, and then from Twitter, we have at Infinity Bros said, fun, weird movie that continued the legacy of the Ant Man movies. Not a top tier Marvel movie, but certainly enjoyable in its own right. Uh, at Beyond Fandom One said, a very fun, adventurous movie with a fantastic villain. Furthers the story, but is a mystery of what's to come. Uh, at DJ, uh, it's, it's spelled that D-J-E-R-M-E-A-L-M. Uh, it's Dom from the Beyond the Fandom podcast. So I know it is. I just don't know how he likes to pronounce it. But he said, enjoyable and good film, but didn't reach my expectations, was missing the Ant-Man charm from the previous movies, and it felt more like a setup rather than an Ant-Man film, but still a good film. Uh, Richard Nebbins from uh, the MCU Direct said that it didn't live up to my high expectations, but I really enjoyed it, and I think it's the best Ant-Man trilogy by a little bit. King kills it, and Jonathan Major is going to be MCU MVP for a long time. I think we're seeing a pattern here already. <laughs> um, at Blake's Buzz said, I'm really excited for it to release on Disney Plus, LOL. So obviously he didn't see it yet. Uh, at the year of the loser said, I thought it was great. Also, I wasn't ready for the King problem. At Otter272 said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was better than the second Ant-Man movie. I thought Jonathan Majors was amazing as Kang. It is a good start to Phase 5, in my opinion, and I think it's going to be a great ride. 
at Mr. Marvel 613 said, honestly, I enjoyed this story was somewhat simple, but helped establish Kang a bit more as a bigger threat down the road. Jonathan Majors crushes his performance. Also my favorite Ant-Man movie of them all. At Theron's Comics said, I thought it was fun and entertaining, but never felt like a Scott Lang movie. Rather, a Kang and Janet movie. They carry the emotional weight and have arcs. Cassie felt more like a plot device and a character. They're simply uh, to start action and let Kang extort Scott. And then finally on Instagram, at Funko underscore pop underscore star said 9 out of 10. So thank you very much for everybody for sharing their thoughts. Ashley, I wanted to give you a chance to share what was your overall thoughts about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So I'm a big Ant-Man fan. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of, cause so Ant-Man is one of those, those trilogies, right? Like not everybody loves Ant-Man. Like he's not the big, he's not Iron Man. He's not Captain America. He's not Thor. He's Ant-Man. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm a little biased. I did do the um, press tour for Ant-Man and the Wasp. So I've been in the room with these guys and I, I just adore them. But I honestly, mm-hmm. I really liked it. And I liked it even better the second time I saw it. Okay. I had my family rewatch the first Ant-Man because I think out of, if you don't want to watch both, that's the more essential of the two. Gotcha. Uh, viewing wise. And by watching it again and then watching Quantumania, it just made me appreciate more the callbacks that they did. Cause a lot of people felt like, Oh, they, they took it out of the real world. And that's what made the Ant-Man movie so special was seeing the, you know, all the stuff, the size difference and all that things like the Pez and, right. <laughs> and Thomas yeah. the train and stuff like that. Yeah. But honestly, I liked it. Did it have some moments where I was like, all right, that's a little, you know, cheesy with the dialogue for sure. But honestly, mm-hmm. Kind of like uh, that one guy. Like, I just had a big, stupid grin on my face. It was fun. <laughs> it was just fun. And it was great to look at. I was like, wow, this is this is great. You know, petition to redo Flight of Passage into the Quantum Realm. Like, seriously, <laughs> I would much rather have the Quantum Realm as that ride than the Flight of Passage. So, right. I mean, yeah. And those post-credits, Majors was a force. I loved Pfeiffer in this. My gosh, mm-hmm. I think also just in general, seeing Janet and Hank, so the original Ant-Man and Wasp, right? Actually mm-hmm. getting to have their moments of like, we're going to kick butt ourselves and right. show why we were the OJ superheroes. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I think I thought it worked. I mean, like, yes, there's some whatever points, but not nothing to take away from the entire experience of it for a fan. Anyway, I know what the critics said. I'm a critic and I didn't, I had a great review for it. <laughs> but Rotten Tomatoes doesn't like me, so <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's interesting because I know a lot of people. I mean, especially with with this film, you see that there is a huge disparity between the audience score and the critics' review, right? And I know that when the critics look at the film, they look at it from a particular set of lens versus what the general audience is going to look for, right? And so. Yeah. Typically with like with the critics and everything like that, and, and you're more of a critic than I am. So you can always, you know, tell me like you're come off base of this if I'm completely off, you know, but I know that they're looking more for not so much objective artwork necessarily, but they're looking for, you know, what is more of like a classically trained of, of what it means to be a good movie and things like that. And not that a superhero movie isn't a good movie or has its own set of standards or anything, but I think when they look at it through the lens, there are certain things that they're looking for. And I think that that's where some of the disparity comes from and comes in um, 
between the audience score and the critic score. Not that the critics um, review doesn't have a place by any means whatsoever. I think some of that's valid, but I think, you know, that also, I think that's the thing that I, I don't look at Rotten Tomato scores a little at like hardly at all. But I think that when I look, when I do look at it, I look at both of the scores because I think that's where the balance comes in is that they're looking at it from a particular view, but that shouldn't be the entire view when we're looking and judging a, a movie and based on like how we enjoy it and, and, and if it's good or things like that. And so that's like one piece of the bigger puzzle of, of all that. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I find it really interesting that for this movie, it seems like the gap was really big compared to some of the other MCU films that we have in terms of the critic score versus the audience score here. So I think, I think some of that is correct. I think when it comes to superhero movies or just, big franchise movies in general. Yeah. They like to nitpick more. Right. And these are the same. You've got to look at some of their other scores, right? For some other yeah. movies that the audience hated, right? Right. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we loved it. Oh, but it's trash. You know? <laughs> but I also fully, and I was having this conversation with somebody on Twitter. Literally, I think it's cool to hate Marvel right now. Yeah. And they really couldn't go after Wakanda forever too much because then it, they lean into like, oh, well, you know, that was a legacy movie and they were paying tribute to him. How dare you, you know, right. go after it. But this, they were like, oh, free reign. So it's almost like they kind of were let free for this one. <laughs> and I, like I said, I just, the audience score tells you, right? That's who it's made yeah. for. It's for made for the audience. It's not for the critics. Me as a mm-hmm. critic, I personally, like, I've watched movies that are definitely not for me. You know, right. I've reviewed SpongeBob is not my thing. I had to review the SpongeBob movie. And I was sitting here watching it going, <laughs> what am I watching? And mm-hmm. I'm not a Batman fan, like not this Batman anyway. Like I, I grew up with like Keaton. Keaton is my Batman. So right, yeah. Th- any of the newer iterations, I'm just like, well, okay. <laughs> so I was watching like the Batman movie, and it's definitely again, it's not for me. Right. But I could at least write the review from this, like what didn't work for me, but also like, hey, if you like Batman, this is probably your thing. Like this is good. But a lot of critics just be like, no, I hated it, and therefore it's bad. Right. Yeah. So. I know. And I think that's unfortunate because I think there's a way to be able to objectively uh, critique a movie without it, you know, diving into your personal taste. Right. Like they're like I, I've written some movie reviews for Comic Watch where I would say I did not enjoy this movie, but I can also say there are good elements of this movie that I thought did a good job. It's just like, it wasn't for me, exactly. you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean like just because I didn't enjoy it means that inherently it's a bad movie. For example, the last of us, right? I know a lot of people enjoy last of us. I am not a post-apocalyptic type of person like zombie. Like that's just not my thing. You know, I have not watched any of the episodes since episode four. I'm just not enjoying it. But objectively, I'll, I'll say, like, it's not that it's a bad show. Like, when I watch it, it's good writing. There's a lot of good things for it. It's just not for me, you know? And so, but I think there's a way to be able to do that. But I, I've, anyways, we're kind of going down the rabbit hole. I did not mean to go into. So, Tangent, uh, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, for me, my overall thoughts, um, this is one of those movies where I enjoyed it. I don't think it's something that I went out to the movie theaters and was completely hyped for. And I think part of it is because we, I, I think we're still trying to get ourselves out of the Infinity Saga to get 
and a better mind frame of what we should be expecting for the multiverse saga, basically. Right. So I think we're expecting every movie to have almost the same element as Infinity War and Endgame and things like that. And I think um, that's been part of my problem is that as I go in, some of these movies just haven't been hitting the same way for me. And I don't know if it's because it's just, you know, not enticing to me or what, but um you know, I, I loved all the actors in there. Like Paul Rudd does a fantastic job. I think everybody that was casted in there does a fantastic job. Uh, Jonathan Majors obviously is, is the person that's running out from this film that um, everybody's going to be talking about for, you know, years to come and everything. Um, I enjoyed it. I think it's one of those movies where I wouldn't watch it again necessarily. Um, and I think it's just partly because there's some things like, just like any movie, there's some things that I was either left confused about or didn't enjoy quite as much. Um, I didn't hate it by any means whatsoever, but I think it's just one of those things where I, when I left the movie theater, I didn't feel myself being overly excited or thrilled or thought that it was an amazing film. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that and I'll get to that in, in a little bit and everything, but, um, yeah, I think it, it just end up being almost like white noise that's setting up for Kang rather than an Ant-Man film. And I know a lot of people have been describing it that way. And I think I, I feel the same way as well too. Um, but, with that being said, I mean, there are still things about the film that I, I did enjoy that I thought was good. I think it was just at the end of the day, it was not on my higher level of um, movies that I've been excited about since like phase four. And I, and I think part of it is just that this is the third Ant-Man film. Right. And and like I said, I'll get into this a little bit later. But um, I think with the third Ant-Man film, you're kind of expecting the same and new stuff at the same time. Like, just like when you're expecting, um, you know, if you're watching the third or fourth Thor movie or whatever, you're expecting the same stuff, but you also want to see new stuff at the same time. And I think that's always hard. And I think that's where this kind of struggled a little bit with that. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Um, and I think that, you know, it's... It's definitely felt like it was more focused on Kang rather than Ant-Man. I think that was the point of it. And and I don't think that was a detriment, though. I, I think I think it made a lot of sense why they use Ant-Man as the kickoff rather than um, another you know movie or franchise or character or whatever, because I think Ant-Man made a lot of sense, especially with how they ended it. I think it made a lot of sense why they went that way. But I, it's one of those things where I feel like it kind of hangs on the balance in terms of did it really work well for it or not? And I think it kind of did both if it made sense. So, um, but yeah, so overall I think, you know, I would probably give it maybe like a seven out of 10. I don't think it was a terrible movie by any means, but I think there were some things that I was, you know, probably expecting more for as well too. So, um, greatest parts about the film that you thought were, you know, were just excellent from the film. Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I kind of said I loved Major's performance. I loved Pfeiffer's performance, Hank and Janet. Aside from all that stuff, I so I like Easter eggs and things like that. So like seeing Jimmy Woo, even though it was like for two seconds, like I mm-hmm. loved that because to me, I love him. And we haven't yeah. seen him since WandaVision. So I was like, that means he was around filming other things because why else is he there? Also, <laughs> when we did the press conference for the movie, he was our moderator and I was so stoked. It was like the best oh. press junket because they were just going back and forth and 
you know, teasing Kevin Feige about we need a Jimmy Woo series, you know, stuff like that. So I, I love stuff, the little things like that. Um, the post credit scenes were <laughs> exciting, especially as a comic nerd. That first one, we were like, oh, yeah, I know what this is. <laughs> um, and gosh, I don't know. I liked. I, I don't know, like Paul Rudd, he's great. I just I love him. So he's just his whole like. What? Modoc and the Mo, what? Mo, how do you say it? Modoc. He's like, oh, it's actually yeah. Modoc. And I was like, right. actually, that tracks. That makes sense. <laughs> it's like, I just, I love, I love his character because I feel like he's like the normal person, right? He's like us. Like if we're in the middle of all this crazy stuff happening, we're just like, why am I actually here? And how is this even a thing? <laughs> like, right. I don't have the superpowers. I don't have all the money. Like, I think it's his relatability ultimately that makes me love these movies. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I, I think Paul Rudd just absolutely crushes as Scott Lang in this movie um, and in like all the movies he's been in. And so I think everybody's absolutely loved him as Scott Lang. Um, and so I agree that um, with this film, the greatest part of uh, the movie has been Jonathan Majors as Kang, um, especially when you see him as he remains from Loki. It is definitely a variant character and he pulls it off very well and that he's not just playing. He remains again. He is playing a different version of that person. And I think he just absolutely does a great job. And I think we really see his range as well, too, because we see him at the very beginning, how he seems very calm. Right. So when he's doing that. Uh, torture scene with Scott and Cassie and how he's very calm about, you know, saying like, you know, I can kill you and, and crush you in a minute. I won't even care at, at that point. And then we get to the part where he's trying to escape the quantum realm. And then Scott Lang comes back and is trying to stop them from going. And you see him like starting to get frustrated, but he's not letting it overwhelm. Like his emotions overwhelm. You just see the frustration on his face that we haven't seen yet. And then by the time the movie ends, like all he is is just all anger. And I absolutely love seeing that progression um, of that character. But again, just him being able to take on a new persona that is also the same person that he played from Loki, I think was incredible. Um, the other thing that I absolutely love about this film that we haven't really seen as much as in the other movies um, is the family dynamic, especially between Scott and Cassie. Right. So I absolutely love how Cassie um, sees, you know, Hope and Janet and um, Hank as part of her family, how they all have a dynamic uh, among each other. You know, the first movie was kind of like, you know, we're in it together because we have to be the second movie. There's a lot of angst between them. Now the third movie, it's like they're all together and they're a big family. Um, So I absolutely love that dynamic between all the characters. Um, But I absolutely love the relationship between Scott and Cassie because we don't see a lot of movies where there is just a really good relationship between the father and son. That's there's no like conflict between each other. Like the most conflict that they had was when Cassie ended up in jail. But even then it was just more of like, you know, you need to stop doing this. And then Scott's like, wait, she's been in jail before. Why didn't anyone tell me this? Um, but they just have a great relationship. And I think we don't see that on screen a whole lot where there is a really good relationship that just builds and doesn't become like the focal point or the focal a conflict of the story. And I absolutely love seeing that in this movie. And I think it made a lot of sense for them to do it with, with uh, Scott and Cassie. Oh yeah. I, I definitely love the familial aspect too. And I think even from the first one, 
Cassie, Abby did such a great job as Cassie, and I really wish mm-hmm. we could still have her. I understand why we don't, you know, the time skip and stuff, but I, I right. thought Catherine like stepped in and did well to bring the essence of what Abby started mm-hmm. in Ant Man one and two, and kind of continue that as that feisty little girl who wants to be her dad's like you know partner in crime, yeah. or I guess in heroism, not crime. But <laughs> they both ended up in jail. It's fine. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think it's interesting that this is a, maybe the only character in the MCU so far that we've seen that has been played by three different people. Right. Like we've had characters been played by two different people. But I think this is the first time we've had three different people. And I really think that the transition has actually worked really well in their favor in that. And and I think just like you said, I think she did a great job of playing Cassie as being the third you know casted member for this role, I think she, you know, stepped in and just did a phenomenal role and and playing the role that she needed to be for this film. So, um, okay, so we talked about our greatest moments in the film. What about weakest moments or moments that we wish could have been better? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> trying to think. That's okay if you don't. That's totally fine. I don't, I don't think anything didn't really like nothing's jumping out like that. I should be like, oh man, I wish that was different. I okay. I, I know we needed, <laughs> we needed Luis. And so maybe that was it for me. Like I wanted him and it to pop up at the end. Cause obviously he's not in the quantum realm, but I wanted him right. to pop up at the end and it'd be him retelling whatever Scott had told him. Right. Cause you know, Scott had been like, Oh man, this time in the quantum realm. And then just seeing Luis like <laughs> go with it. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved that. So I missed that. So I guess that was probably the only like really low point for me. Cause everything else, like even the some of the weaker scenes as far as dialogue was concerned, like I said, it, it wasn't enough to like obviously register on the radar to be like, oh, right, whatever. So yeah, right. the entourage. Although Dash Malin was in it, just in a different role. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I love how there was a video of him saying that his role is. Uh, his new role, like his character is actually be going to be the person that saves everybody from Kang and, and the quantum realm and all that. I thought that was really funny. Um, but I agree. Yeah. Like I didn't even think about Luis, but you're right. It, Luis has definitely been a staple of the Ant-Man series that now that you say that, I'm like, Oh, I, I do wish I had Luis in this movie. <laughs> so I know. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I had said this before Endgame came out as well too. I said that I really wanted Luis to do a, um, it was either before Endgame came out or maybe after Endgame, but I wanted Luis to do a recap of like everything that's happened so far, you know, just as like kind of like a fun, like they didn't have to put in the, in the movie. They could just do it as like a YouTube video that they could put as part of their channel or something like that. I thought that would be a lot of fun. So kind of like I the think, Thor roommate ones. Like I would have yes. done, they could have just done that. Oh my yeah. God. I will pay money. I will pay them money for that. <laughs> Premium just access the, prices. Just like, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, like Louis, Louise tells or whatever, you know, and, and uh, or Louise tales and and uh, just do one shots that they put on Disney Plus. I think that would have been fantastic. So um, for me, like it, it's similar to you in that these aren't things that I thought that made the movie necessarily um, like extremely weak by any means. But I think there's just things that as I'm watching the movie. Um, I just kind of noticed these things and it, it took me out from a little bit, but it doesn't really like brings it down to a point where it's just like, okay, I can't like watch this movie anymore for that reason. Right. And so I, it, it came down to two things. And then a question that is still lingering for me. Um, the first one is 
at the beginning of the movie, they really focus on how Scott isn't really contributing to anything other than his book, right? And so they really focused in on that. They show how um, Hope's been doing a great job with her new role and what she's been doing. Cassie's been, you know, um, doing a great job with um, her activism and things like that. Um, but Scott is just like going around talking about his book and he's not, they may seem like he's not really contributing anything to society or making a difference since in game and all that. Um, and so I know you can argue that quantum media, like when it goes to quantum realm, he does that, but I felt like the focus was for him to try to do something a little bit more substantial and um, consistent that I felt like it just kind of fell by the wayside after that. And that's it. Like they never really focus or talk about that ever again. So it was just something they focused on so much at the beginning. And then it just didn't really fall through by the end of the movie. And so that was something that kind of threw me off a little bit. Um the other thing, I think this is something that they're just going to have to figure out if they still do more Ant-Man films is that going back to what we're talking about, how you're always expecting, you know, a little bit of the same, but also something new when you have a new movie of a character that you've already seen before. Um, we've already had the we've seen things getting you know blown up into great giant size and things being shrunk down and stuff like that. In this movie, there wasn't a lot of new type of. Uh, technology or techniques or fighting styles or anything like that, that I felt like it almost got stale with that. Um, not that there was anything bad with using, like reusing those or anything like that, but I think part of me was expecting to see something a little bit new or different with the technology that we didn't get to see that. So I think for me, it's like if they do another movie, I really want them to be able to get creative and do something different with the shrinking particles that they have um, that they can, you know, kind of make it go a little bit further. Kind of like with the Iron Man suits. Like every time we see a new movie with Iron Man and, and Tony Stark, we get something a little bit different. It doesn't have to be massive by any means, but there's just a little bit of a difference from the last movie that makes it, you know, um, kind of stand out a little bit more. And I think that's where this movie kind of staled a little bit is that we didn't have a whole lot of that. Um, and then the question I still have is in, Amy and the Wasp, when Janet comes back from the quantum realm, she went up to Ghost and like used her quantum powers or whatever to heal her. And I feel like in this movie, we didn't really see any of that at all. And I, I, I guess I'm just really <laughs> confused and and kind of figuring out, like, like, why are we not exploring that again? Was that like a one time thing and they just never really explained that or what's going on? Because it seemed like that was something that she gained as a person who spent so much time in the quantum realm. But then since he's been back, like we haven't really seen her tap into that. And, and just like we said, Michelle Pfeiffer did a great job in this role. And uh, and I think that, you know, her character is phenomenal. And I absolutely love seeing her character in this movie. And that's been one of the highlights of the movie. It's just that that was something that I just keep asking myself, like, why haven't we seen like this being explored or explained yet either? So so I think for me, those are kind of my weakest moments for the movie that I'm hoping that I will either, you know, get beyond or they explain or sometimes what happens is you watch a movie and you just don't even realize that they explain it. And you just completely, you know, combed over it, basically. So I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so that's what it was for me. Um, let's talk about the ant family dynamic. What did you think about seeing, um, you know, Hope and Janet and Hank all together again, along with Scott and Cassie and them being kind of a family unit, even though they're, you know, two different kinds of families. They're, you know, obviously a familiar unit altogether. What did you think about that in this film? I think you kind of touched on that. It seemed like, you know, the first one they were thrust together as a 
necessity. The second one, they obviously Hank and Hope are a little bitter because mm-hmm. of the whole Civil War business. And I mean, rightfully so. You know, you lost the suit. You, know, you mailed it USPS. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, so this one, I thought it was great to see. They clearly moved beyond that. They're now like a working unit. They mm-hmm. pick at each other. Yeah, but in a loving way, like, oh, you saved the world, didn't know, like, you should write a book about it, right. you know, that kind of stuff. But still, like, clearly, like, Hank's looking out for Cassie, and they just kind of, I don't know, it just felt nice, because like you said, we don't really see the family stuff in the MCU. The only other person that has family, you know, that we see, we, that we saw consistently anyway was Hawkeye, and even mm-hmm. then, we didn't really get a ton of time with him and his family, it was right. definitely more like a plot device to kind of move stuff along and to have the safe house and stuff. But right. So it's, it's nice. It's just really nice to see them working together. I love their dynamic. My God, Michael Douglas and <laughs> Paul Rudd together are just, I love them. I just love them <laughs> so much. And I just wonder how much of that is scripted and how much of it is just let them go, like let <laughs> them bounce off each other, let them be snarky to each other. Uh-huh. You know, I just it was, it was nice. It was just nice to see everybody together. So, yeah, I agree. Well, and, and especially um, that one scene where uh, Hank like quotes uh, Scott Lang to himself. Yes. I, I forget what he said, like looking out for the little guy. And mm-hmm. he's like, you read my book. And he looks at him with a straight face like like <laughs> like he was forced to read his like every damn word. Like, yeah. <laughs> I also liked how he said to Cassie when she's like they went and got her out of jail in the beginning. And he's like, I've just broken you out with ants. And I was like, oh, my God. Can you imagine? Yeah. Your grandpa busting you out of jail with some ants. Yeah. Like that's I must wish that's what happened. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, and, and yeah, like we said, I, I absolutely love that she calls him, you know, grandma and grandpa. Um, I didn't catch what she calls hope. I don't think she's ever called hope mom, but I mean, that's totally fine because, you know, she has a mom and we didn't see her in, in this movie at all. But, um, I love that she calls him grandma and grandpa. Um, what I also absolutely love, and I don't know how many people picked up on this, but, when we see Michael Douglas and Janet, um, I'm sorry, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer's characters, when they're on the ship talking about how they've been separated for like 30 years and how each one of them have needs, right? Hope Van Dyne going like, oh my God, oh my God, like that was hysterical. I like that too. Yeah. Oh, it it was just like going back and forth. I kept getting worse and worse. Yeah. Stop talking. Yes. Um, what I love about it is that clearly that's the first time they've been talking about it because um, Michael Douglas didn't know about uh, Bill Murray's character at all. Like this is the first time that he's ever heard of him. And we see the scene where he gets a little bit jealous and get a little annoyed with this character. But when on the ship and they're talking about it, it seems like they were at a place where they're comfortable, that they're happy that they got each other back that those 30 years of like whatever happened didn't really interfere with their relationship marriage with one another. And I thought that was a fantastic scene to be able to see and show how strong the relationship is, is that even 30 years apart and knowing and like just, you know, understand. And maybe that's like the scientists in there where they're just like, yeah, like people have needs and, you know, you get over it type of thing. But um 
But I think that it just shows how strong the relationship is that even in those, you know, kinds of moments that it wasn't going to stop them from, you know, loving each other. Right. Like, especially the nice little quote that Michael Douglas had where he's just like, yeah, that person didn't work out because they weren't you, you know, and yeah. and and obviously, like, obviously, like you can't be mad at that uh, for any reason. But um, I just absolutely love how this family dynamic was um, was kind of the, the focal point without you realizing it. Right. Because it was something that was centered, but it wasn't harped on at all. It was just part of a natural progression of what's happening in the story that it didn't deter you from the main story of trying to stop Kang from getting into, um, you know, out of the quantum realm and everything like that. But it, they put enough stuff in there to let you enjoy those great things about the ant family. And just, you know, this is a like a great ideal family to have that we don't see in some of the other movies or even in, like, let's be honest, like comic books, like, you know, every what's the um, joke that everybody says, like, if you want to be a superhero, you have to have some sort of traumatic family event that happened and all that. So it's kind of nice to be able to see that it, not everything has to be a traumatic. I mean, they had traumatic events, but this doesn't have to be one of them. And they and it was a really good fa- uh, family experience to have in the movies. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. OK, so let's switch over and let's talk about MODOK. Um <laughs> Because I got to say, there, there's a lot of things that people are going to be saying about Modoc and for a number of different reasons and everything. And I think this was really interesting to see Modoc in this film for a number of reasons. Um, but I want to get your thoughts about, you know, the character. And, and for people who don't know, um, they took liberties of this character from the comic book because from the comic book, it was actually a completely different character. It wasn't... Um, Daryl from, or I'm sorry, Darren from uh, the first Ant-Man movie. It was actually George Tartleton, if I remember the name correctly. Um, so this is a different origin story and different background and everything. So this MODOK that we get is strictly unique to the MCU. Um, but there's just a lot to kind of unpack here, I think, from a number of perspectives. So I want to get your thoughts and feedback about um, what you thought about MODOK in this film. So I I think overall he works. Mm-hmm. Um I will say the first time I watched it, it was a little not distracting because I definitely didn't get taken out of the movie. But when they were showing Darren's face, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, OK, like it just <laughs> it was like this smushed face. And that, that is what he looks like. But he definitely wasn't as wrinkly and like lined as as much as he is in the comics. But I mm-hmm. will say Modoc is a ridiculous character. Like he's a ridiculous mm-hmm. character in the comics. He's a giant floating head with baby arms and baby legs. And I kind of just <laughs> love that they leaned into that. They leaned into the ridiculousness of Modoc and we're like, we're going to go all in. Like, we're going to make fun of the arms. And he's a giant floating head. We're going to be like, what happened to you? Oh, it's an acronym. Oh, I get it. And I will say again, the second time painting anything, and I knew exactly what to expect. He didn't bother me as much the second time. His like mm-hmm. smushed face. I just was like cracking up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I think that was something that my wife and son didn't have an issue with how Modoc was at all whatsoever. And they don't know anything about Modoc. And, you know, I think they picked up on the fact that it was a silly character. Um, I think other people are not picking up on that fact. And I, I think, you know, part of it is the fact that, I think Modoc took himself seriously, which again, as a character, he does take himself seriously, but as a, you know, observer, you see how ridiculous it is for him to take him, take himself seriously. And so I think, 
it wasn't just enough that they had Scott and Cassie make fun of him the whole time. And I think some other people as well, too. Like there's, uh, you know, people that are making fun of him the whole time, but they did a great job of just making fun. Like when he was telling his backstory, like they would just jump in and say, Oh, Derek, like, <laughs> like, Oh yeah, I did. I didn't recognize you at first. Right. Like right in the middle <laughs> of it and everything. Um, I find it interesting because again, with the MCU, I think they need to take liberties in changing the, background stories and the origin stories and the characters and stuff like that, because it's not going to be one, you know, one to one translation of the comics by any means whatsoever. I think this made a lot of sense. Um, I will also say that I don't think they necessarily need to have Modoc in this film. Like I think he didn't necessarily have to be present in order for the events to happen, but at the same token, if Modoc was going to show up somewhere, this would be the movie where it makes the most sense for it. You know, I, I think it made a lot of sense to bring back um, Corey Stoll as um, as Modoc and kind of make that kind of the origin story of that way. You're not having to dive into like who this person is like you already have an idea of who the person is and then just kind of give me an update on, you know, where he's been since this whole time and how he got to where he's at. Um, the CGI, I will say that. It didn't bother me. I think the reason why I say it doesn't bother me is because this is a, of all the characters we have, this is a very unrealistic proportion of a person that you can't really expect to, for the CGI to be, you know, 100% astounding to make it seem so realistic, right? Like it's a giant head with tiny arms and tiny legs, like you said. Um, it's, it's a weird just setup overall. And I think that that's the reason why the CGI didn't bother me. Like, was it great? It wasn't hundred percent realistic. Absolutely not. But the character is not hundred percent realistic. And so I think, you know, as an audience member, you kind of have to let that go in order to enjoy it because there's just no way that any sort of, it, no matter how much time and how much money and how many artists that they have on that, that they're going to make it look hundred percent realistic, like something that you see in the real world. You know, I, I compare it to, Think of it as something that you would see in the quantum realm, but not in, you know, the MCU Earth, basically. And and, and I think if you kind of frame it that way, then it makes a lot more sense. But um, I I enjoyed the character. I think, you know, it, it he was funny. I think it was, you know, funny to kind of see him get knocked down a lot to think that he can, you know, you know, take on anybody and he keeps getting his butt kicked. Um, it was nice for him to kind of have his own like redemption arc and everything and how he thought that he was an Avenger at the end. And Scott's like, what? No, like we didn't say that. Um, so I, I think it was funny. I enjoyed Modoc in here. I know people probably have qualms about it, but I think at the end of the day, I think it made a lot of sense. I think that this is one character that I would not harp on because it's supposed to be a fun, funny, ridiculous, uh, character. Um, could they have done something to make it a little bit more obvious that it was supposed to be a goofy character? Probably. But at the end of the day, I think that if you haven't picked up on it by then, you know, someone has to fill in the details for you in order for that to happen at that point. So, yeah, you're not wrong. I also saw the, <laughs> one of the comic writers who apparently has written a lot of Modoc's definitely not the one that I'm reading, but he's like, I've written like the most Modoc other than like Stan Lee. He's like, it was perfect for the character. Like the yeah. way they dealt with it. He was like, that's him. And so I was like, See, guys, it's like Dan Stoll. Like, he knows yeah. more about She-Hulk than you do, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and if he's telling you the show is great and it's the most comic book-like show out there, why don't you just take several seats? Because you're yes. not the expert. But yeah. Yes, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, and, and I think it goes back to what you're saying. I think it's it's really popular to hate something, you know, popular, you know, mm -hmm. and... 
And um, I think that's what people are just looking for. And, 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 and honestly, let's be honest, like that's an easy target because MODOK is an easy target, right? Yes. <laughs> a big, yeah. easy target. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> big, bad, yes. I know. Yeah. So um, let's switch over and let's talk about Kang, Jonathan Majors, his performance as Kang. Um, and, and we'll talk about the mid and, and uh, post credit scene um, as a separate thing after this. But um, I, I know we already talked about him and everything. What did you think about his performance in this movie compared to his performance as He Who Remains? And what do you think like made the difference between Loki and Ant-Man for him here? So... First of all, he did a phenomenal job. And like mm-hmm. you said, you know, he was definitely playing Kang in both, but mm-hmm. the variants. And just like how Tom approached playing the variants of Loki in the Loki series that we got a little bit of, it's mm. I love watching that switch, you know, watching how they it's almost like you turn very slightly. It's like you turn on a dime. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're you know they're different. Like you don't need to know they're like going in that they're different to know that they're now different. Right. And yeah, he who remains was definitely like, Hey, look, I've orchestrated all this stuff. I brought you here. Like, I need you to do this. Like, don't kill me. That's going to be a problem. And he's much, he was much more, not like aloof, but definitely, you know, laid back. He wasn't trying to conquer anything. He's already done it. And he set mm-hmm. up his little system to make sure it all plays out the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it played out the way that it did. And then Kane comes in and he starts out sympathetic right i mean you know he's the bad guy but he's so sad that he's crashed in the quantum realm like you can understand why janet sympathized with this guy and was like super excited that she had another human like person to talk to and Mm -hmm. after all those years and somebody that also had a brilliant mind and he earned his arrogance in this movie like you Mm -hmm. just see it so when he comes out and he's full-on like you talk to ants like I'm paying the conqueror. You talk to it. You're ridiculous. The fact right. that you're standing up to me, like, how dare you? It was a hundred percent earned. It didn't feel like it came out of left field anywhere. And just, yeah, he just portrayed Kank. I think the conqueror was a little bit angrier throughout, but kind of just let it simmer. Whereas right. he who remains wasn't angry. He was just like, eh, it is what it is. Right. <laughs> So I yeah. think that kind of was the difference. You could kind of feel his simmering anger. And then it just built, like you said, by the end, he was just pissed. So, right. and it comes out, but yeah, I'm so, yeah. oh man, they've made such a great choice with him. I know we've said that like 500 times now, but I know he did. he's so good to carry this forward and to be King and all the yes. versions of him. Yes. Yeah. And I agree. And, and I think it's really interesting because when you look at the affinity saga, um, you know, the way they approached Thanos was still kind of behind the scenes a lot, right? Like, we didn't really see Thanos, I think, until Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, I, I guess Avengers, we saw him a little bit when Loki talked to him and all that, but we didn't get much of a presence at the same level until Guardians of the Galaxy and then further on. Whereas now, you know, we got him in Loki and then we got him in this movie. And, I mean, this movie is clearly, you know, setting up to kind of get the... Uh, King, you know, the Council of Kings set up and, and you know, him being the big bad for the next two phases and everything. Um, but I think what's really telling is that they're really honing in on the actor and it just the character as well, too. 
and, and getting you introduced to him at the very beginning. And I think there's a reason for that is because of the multiverse and for the, all the variants and stuff like that. You kind of have to do that at the beginning instead of trying to shoehorn it in at the end. But I think that Jonathan Majors was probably the best person they could do because he clearly has been able to, you know, play different roles, but also present himself as the same person, but the different variant and being able to set that up from the beginning, very beginning of phase five and going into phase six. And who knows how long this is? Like we know that multiverse saga is going to be phase five phase six but they might extend it out to like phase seven and phase eight and who knows like we don't know anything about about that right and so i think it made a lot of sense for them to do it early on and to introduce you to the big bad so that way we kind of know what's coming um but what i absolutely love and this will kind of transition into the next part here as well too is that at the end of the movie you see scott having that inner dialogue where he is start getting to get worried about what has just happened with King. Even though King died, he started thinking about like, wait, King said that if he doesn't get out, then everybody will, that I know will die. And then he starts panicking internally. Right. And then he kind of, you know, dismisses it. And then he has another moment where he's like, yeah, we don't have to worry about King anymore. Right. Right. And it was a very ominous feeling as a movie watcher that, it, it was almost reflective of what you see in the comics sometime is that they kind of leave it as, yeah, so we don't have to worry about this person. Then they kind of give you a little bit of a, you know, maybe artwork or some sort of words or something like that that made you think this is not over yet. And I think that the reason why Ant-Man made a lot of sense for that film to be the kind of the kickoff of Kang is because with Ant-Man's presence and just like what you said, like his kind of character of, you know, him not having such as such a presence as Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and all that for him to have like that sort of ominous feeling of what's going on, what's happening because he's more of like an everyday kind of person, but he having some of those overwhelming feelings I think made a lot of sense for them to do this movie but also this was just it was just he nailed it in terms of how nerve-wracking is for as an audience member to watch that and be like because I was expecting something to happen at the end right and then when it didn't I was just like you kind of left hanging and and it made me realize that this is what we're expecting for the you know next movies for the phase five phase six is that Something ominous is happening. We know it's Kang, but we don't know like what yet still. And I think that was just a great way for them to set that up. And, and with Jonathan Majors playing Kang, it made a lot of sense for them to use Ant-Man as kind of like that kickoff because it was something else. I don't think that ominous feeling would have come across as well, um, because I think with, you know, who Scott Lang is, it made it a little bit more, I think, down to earth. And that this is kind of a real ominous feeling that we need to have as an audience member. Yeah, no, I'm. I was actually surprised everybody made it out alive yeah. of this yeah. one. So when I was watching it with the with the press screening, I was like, first of all, I was like, please don't kill Scott. Please don't kill Scott. <laughs> you can have help. Don't take Scott. You know. And so right. when they all walked away, I was like, oh, so with him walking down, and he's just like, oh, you know, wait. This like it's almost like he was like me. This ended way too tidily, right? Yeah, it it, it, t- it cleaned up nicely. That's a little suspicious, right? <laughs> so yeah, right. It was like you said, like we were literally the audience. We're sitting there, like, wait a minute, something's yeah. <laughs> gonna happen. Is he gonna? I was fully expecting to see him as he's doing that internal dialogue, like Kang, a version of Kang, sitting like yes in a booth somewhere. 
or just like a pan out and he's outside or he's also getting coffee or something crazy, but in the background so that Scott doesn't actually see him. Right. And I saw, I was like, again, so I was like sitting there going, Oh God, like this isn't the end. Like we know it's not the end. So this is crazy. So, right. Yeah. 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 Just- <laughs> yeah. And it's that sense of like, we know something bad is going to happen, but we don't know what it is. Like we know it's Kang involved, but we still don't know what. And like, that's, that's the nerve wracking part. It's like, we just, that not knowing part is I think is what they really delivered on very well with that. So, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the mid and post credit scene, um, I know you had talked about the mid credit scene being, you know, straight from the comic book. Do you want to share what that, what that is and kind of talk a little bit about where that's coming from and, and what is getting you excited about that whole thing? I mean, cause we know it's, it's the Kang dynasty, right? And so we know mm-hmm. Kang's a variant. So what we saw there was the council of Kings, like the mm-hmm. three guys, the three main Kings that are left. And then all the other Kings, including a zombie one, which I was like, okay, zombies. <laughs> cause we know there's going to be a zombie show. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can get a zombie Kang now. So that's super exciting and yeah. terrifying probably. Um, <laughs> Considering Zamba, Zamba, Zombie Wanda is also extremely <laughs> deadly. So just Kang is a zombie. It's going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was the Council of Kings. That was Immortus, um, Ramatut. And then so there's been some debate as to who the third one is. Is it Iron Lad? That's kind of where I was leaning. It could be Kid Immortus or a version Mm-hmm. They, they might not ever name them either. You right. know how the MCU loves to not know. Like, we don't know. Is that Stinger Cassie or is that um, Stature Stature, Cassie? right. Right. I mean, based on the suit, it's Stinger Cassie. Right. right. But, and I think, yeah, and I think <laughs> yeah, and I think somebody had also said that it could be um, Scarlet Centurion Kang as well, too. So someone um, said that, but I was like, I feel like they would have put red on him in, in that case. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've only so seen it once. I can't remember all that. the, yeah, I can't remember all the details and everything. He definitely yeah. kind of looked like he was an, wearing like the Iron Man like suit. So Iron Lad has like the Iron Man like type tech, but he also right. looked super younger. So I was like, he's kind of, it could be Kid Immortus too. Or like a, or like you said, they, it's never a one to one. So it literally could be a combination of the two. And then they may or may not name him later right. on. And so we can be like, oh, yes, thanks for the clarification. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's what's interesting is that and and I didn't pick up on this and maybe you did, but it it seemed like they called everybody because the exiled one is now dead. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, why did it take his death for them to, like, do something like why have they been waiting? Because they're the ones that exiled him. Right. Like. So my theory on that is that they're not actually talking about Kang the Conqueror. They're talking about he who remains, who is the one who pushed them uh, all out of the timeline. Right, right. And you know, he's also dead. And I don't think I believe Kang the Conqueror is officially dead, only because if Modok Darren could survive being sucked right. in smaller, who's to say Kang didn't also survive? I know. That's they never stay dead, right? Exactly. It's comic book dead, which means anybody can come back yeah. at any point. Yeah. And with a better explanation than Palpatine being a clone. So <laughs> True. <laughs> um yeah, and I think I think that's just really interesting to see how they're setting that up for you know, the King dynasty and secret wars. Um, and then we get that post credit scene of, uh, Victor timely, which is also another variant of King. Um, but we see Loki and Mobius there. Um, and it, I find it interesting because they didn't s- reference like the Loki show or anything, 
So I'm kind of curious to see if the events that happens in the show, if it's going to trickle into some of the future movies because of this. I, I, I got to I got to assume that it has to because there's no way that you're going to have these things like happening on the side in the show and it impacting the MCU films and for them to not end up in the film at some point. So my guess is at some point after the season two of Loki, which I think is supposed to be happening, you know, this year or next year, I can't remember when, um, but I got to imagine that it's going to come into the movies and everything, but it's really interesting to see that they use that one as well too. That it's another Kang variant, but we're going to see Loki Morbi- and, and Mobius in here and, and Victor Timely specifically of all things. And I, I don't know much about Victor Timely other than just a little bit what I read about him. Um, but my guess is if they're making that as a separate scene, that has to be really important for some reason. I think you're right. So Loki's supposed to be this year as well as um, Secret Invasion. I think those are the only two shows they've guaranteed. For That's right. Yeah. This yeah. year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Guardians as well as Marvel's will have a post-credit scene that includes something from Loki or Secret mm-hmm. Invasion, either or, mm-hmm. um, with something that points to Kang or the Skrulls or whatever. But yeah, so Victor Timely is also, so the original Human Torch was like kind of like Vision. He was a synthesoid or whatever they called them. I'm blanking on the name at the moment. It's been a long day. But yeah, yeah. that's what he was. He wasn't a person. And Victor okay. Timely was the mentor to the man who made the Human Torch. So oh. it's kind of... It's, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I- <laughs> and we do, and you do know that King is technically like the son of Reed Richards, right? And Yeah. Well, I remember he yeah. was a descendant. I, I know that there's like a lot of mixed yeah, bags and all that but he's definitely related to them yeah so i'm yeah. like oh is it victor timely is there, are they going to rework the fantastic four like <laughs> or is it just because it works because he's like old timey and it, it'll be a cool like transition to like the crazy quantum realm stuff if we travel back in time and deal with this king in a more i don't know natural setting than the quantum realm Either way, I was super excited to see Tom back on the big screen as Loki just because I mean, he doesn't love seeing Loki. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. It it was it was honestly, it was a lot of fun. It was exciting. And and I thought it was really cool. And and, yeah, I absolutely loved it. So, Um, well, that wraps up our review for uh, Amy and the Lost Quantumania. Ashley, thank you very much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, can you let us know where we can find you and your work online? Okay, so I'm on Twitter at that Ashley Aaron. Uh, my website's with ashleyandco.com, and that has all the other socials if you want to find me. But if you're trying to talk nerdy, it's usually on Twitter with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And I'll make sure to put those in the show notes as well, too. So, Ashley, thank you very much, and have um, a great rest of your week. And again, thank you for coming back on the show and, and talking to us about uh, Amen the Lost Quantumania. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And that wraps up another episode of The Caption Life. I hope you enjoyed listening, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can follow us on social media at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout-out by tagging us in your post or send us a message. For more information about us and all of our previous episodes, visit thecapsinlife.com. 